You're listening to the Tenuto Podcast presented by 4th Street Records. I'm your host, Kevin Lynch, and here we go! Alright, welcome back to another episode of the Tenuto Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lynch, and today is a weird one. It's a Thursday. I just got done with our band assessments here in Northern Virginia, and uh, I didn't put it out on Tuesday because we had our assessments Monday, Tuesday. Uh, this episode is going to be coming out Thursday morning. I'm recording it Wednesday night because I had a lot on my mind and I had a lot to be doing these first two days of the week. So Tenuto became kind of a second priority. I think we all know as band directors, it's, it's hard to manage your time super well. Um and sometimes you just need to put things ahead of other things. So Tenuto took a back seat this week, but for good reason. The bands did a really, really amazing job at assessments, and I'm very, very proud of, of how they did. And now we get to hear from one of my best friends. His name's Evan Harger. Uh, I went to Penn State with him. He was in the trombone studio, and he was one of the biggest models and role models for me student-wise at Penn State. I was a freshman when he was a senior in the trombone studio and he was, everybody knew he was going on to become a conductor and he was going to grad school for conducting and I was just a freshman, wasn't really sure what I was doing. And there was a day where I I just felt lost. I felt like I wasn't cut out for this major I wasn't cut out to be a music educator and he was he was in the practice rooms he heard me practicing and he just walked in and and listened to me and we 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 started talking and you know we talked about concerns and he he had really been there for me ever since so really really thrilled that you guys will get to hear from him he he helped me focus on my goals and helped show me that I was capable of being a great teacher and that although I was struggling with things like music theory, those things were going to, those struggles were going to make me the teacher that I am. And I can relate to the students who don't get it right away. And I can tell them the tricks that I used. And, and that's proven to be true in the first two years of my teaching. Just, you know, I can relate to the kids who don't get it right away. And that's okay, because I can help them, and I know where they are, and, and Evan really taught me to, to see things that way, and, you know, that's what it is being a teacher, is you got to relate to your students any way you can, and, and Evan showed me that I can definitely do that, so Evan is a master student, master conductor, he's been to four different universities, um, one as an undergrad at Penn State, after Penn State, he went on to the University of Georgia, he went to the University of Oregon, and he went to where he is now, University of Michigan Michigan State, um, and he studies orchestral conducting. Really, really, really awesome interview, super insightful. I hope you enjoy. This is Evan Harger. All right, I've got here my great friend, Evan Harger doctoral conducting student at Michigan State University. Evan, thank you for finally joining the podcast. Well, it's great to be here, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, 
Can you just tell me what your role is currently at Michigan State? Sure. Well, um, I'm a doctoral conducting assistant at, at Michigan State. So there's kind of two quick parts of that. I mean, one, there's all the logistical stuff that you can expect that we all know about. So we don't have to go into that. But mm -hmm. uh, musically, I direct the second orchestra here with my colleague Suhan and uh, this called the MSU Concert Orchestra. And then also conduct the symphony orchestra, sometimes conduct the new music ensemble on, on many occasions and just various conducting things. So gotcha. Do it's you have... just kind of an all around conducting person, I would. Sure. And now this is your third, no, fourth university that you've been a student at. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, this will be my final degree. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk to me a little bit about your path? through music, what even, can you tell me what got you started in music and, and to where you are now? Well, I mean, I, I started like probably most people do. Um, I played in, I got started on the trombone in fourth grade and I got into middle school band, uh, which I was really a big fan of. And then I got into high school band, marching band. Um, I think the moment where I really started really digging music was when I played in the Pittsburgh Youth Symphony Orchestra, which was a really high-level group in my, my senior year of high school. And that was when I really got to first play, like, really substantial, you know, Bartok and Hindemith and Mozart. And, and just really said, well, I didn't play Mozart as a trombonist, but I watched people play Mozart. And it was really... So that's when I, I think I finally knew that music was for me. And then I went to Penn State undergrad. Before you went to Penn State, did you have any mentors that you had before all these collegiate mentors? Yeah, I would say my trombone teacher, Kevin McManus, mm. uh, who was one of uh, our, both you and I share a common teacher, Mark Lusk, trombone. Yeah. And, uh, he was one of Mark's students, I would say. He was one of my big mentors musically. Yeah, was he somebody who guided my, uh, you towards Penn State? Uh, I think yes. I mean, he was pretty open-minded at the time, but I think he secretly was guiding me towards Penn State. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you went to Penn State studying trombone performance, right? That was your major. And then after Penn State, you decided to go down to Georgia. Oh, sorry. I think we're having connection issues. Okay. Um, but you, you studied Penn, at Penn State for trombone performance, and then you went down to Georgia. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the thought process going down to Georgia after your undergrad? Sure. Well, I knew I wanted to be a conductor probably from my first year of my undergrad. I just really oh, okay. dug it, and I started doing it. Um, and Mark Lusk and I were really um, – we talked about that quite a bit. Um, but honestly, I just – I really got into the band conducting side of things because I really just enjoyed my experiences with band so much. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went down to Georgia with that thought process in mind. And, you know, at Georgia, I did everything from the marching band to the pep band to the campus band, to the wind ensemble, wind symphony, symphonic band. I mean, just all of the things that one does as a wind uh, teaching assistant. Yeah. Um, and it was only when... Um, my first teacher, John Lynch, moved to Australia, and then my second teacher moved to Georgia, Cynthia Johnston-Turner, um, and I started subbing a little bit with this local youth symphony that I really started to fall in love with the music 
and the teaching and the the pedagogy behind strings. And very quickly, it, it, it became obvious to me that this was the route that I wanted to go. So the Win TA thing was kind of a serendipitous route to where I'm where I am now and where I've been for the past four years, which is conducting orchestras. Yeah. Wow. So so when you were in Georgia, what was your master's in? It was just wind conducting? Wind conducting is what they call it. Okay. And then after University of Georgia, you went to University of Oregon, all the way on the West Coast. That's correct. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. What a big move for you. I mean, what what was that like, moving all the way out there? And what were you doing at University of Oregon? Well, in Georgia, I was eating a lot of fried chicken. And in Oregon, <laughs> I was eating a lot of fried tempeh. And <laughs> very different kind of place. Uh, no, but I, I definitely think that that part of it was valuable. Like, I got to see two very different, not just like schools, but, you know, different communities uh, which have very different feels to them. Eugene, Oregon is a pretty unique place, to say the least. Um, but at Oregon, I was doing largely the similar things. I was teaching conducting. I was conducting the orchestra. Uh, I was building up the campus orchestra, which was really small when I got there, probably like 15 people when I got there, and we, mm-hmm. we built it up to about 60. So it, it was a different thing, but it was, you know, being a conductor and a teacher, is, there are similar things everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, and now you have all these amazing experiences, and uh, and hopefully you're using them at Michigan State, and hopefully you can use them in the future. I just, speaking about the community of Eugene, Oregon, when I visited you two years ago out there, it, it's still like such an amazing thought to go back to the, the crazy community there, and just like the people who are so free and easy living, it was, it was nice. Definitely miss it. Yeah. There's my favorite Eugene story as I was driving to Portland and I almost got hit by a Scooby-Doo mobile and I just was like, this could only happen in Eugene in Portland, a mystery <laughs> bus. <laughs> but um, yeah, really, I really enjoyed my time there and I, and, I, and I hope someday I get to move back to the West Coast if at all possible. It was really kind of fun. Yeah. Absolutely. So all this time being a graduate student and and now you're a doctoral student, do you ever just get tired of being a student? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we all do. Um, You know, I want to say that I never, I don't think I ever get tired of being a learner. Like I'm never tired of learning stuff. Yeah. Uh, Am I tired of learning stuff in a formal sit down kind of way. Yeah. There are days when that wears on me or like it would wear on it. I mean, it wears on every doctoral student. I mean, I remember one of my mentors used to say getting a doctorate is like getting a degree in perseverance mm. <laughs> because you have so many hoops you have to jump through at any institution, you know, just the, the, the paperwork, the dissertation, the committees you have to get on. And so that can get tiresome sometimes, but in terms of just digesting new interesting material from a variety of subject matters. I, I personally never get tired of that. And even when I'm employed and I'm working, I'm never going to be tired of that either. So sure. I would like to think that as teachers, we never get tired of learning. <laughs> yeah. Going back to your time at uh, University of Oregon, you said you started or you, you developed an orchestra from 15 members to about 60. There's yeah, a lot of people right. who listen to this um, who have been asking to 
to ask the people on this show to talk about their recruiting techniques. What were some of the things you were doing to get more people involved in your orchestra? Well, I mean, uh, I can go through that. I just want to preface that by saying that, you know, building a second orchestra at a college obviously is right. different than right. building a orchestra at a high school or building an or, you know, so all the necessary caveats apply, you know, and I mm-hmm. would never presume to lecture somebody how to build their program. Oh, yeah. You know, every 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 situation is totally different. And, you know, the money can be different and the socioeconomic business can be different. But, you know, in my circumstance, the second orchestra was primarily a non-major orchestra, as it is at many places. And when I got there, it was just strings, which is fine. That's great. But there was a lot of interest in on the part of the students to grow into a full symphony orchestra with winds, brass, percussion. And so... I sort of, I would say that the strategies I employed were first is just to have a plan and to like really stick to it. Like I really, I sat down and like articulated a two year plan and the goal was by the, we we operate on quarters in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So like a fall quarters, winter quarter, spring quarter. So I said by the spring quarter of my first year, we need to begin implementing winds, brass and percussion. And that necessitated that obviously we weren't going to go from just strings to suddenly full orchestra. So that necessitated we we're going to have this kind of hybrid, you know, quasi, you know, four clarinets, a euphonium, a vuvuzela, and a string orchestra, you know, like whatever yeah. happens to be in the room right. to semester. So I would say that the first thing is, was to have a plan. The second thing was to program music intelligently. I feel like programming, we talk about it from an artistic standpoint a lot, but we don't always talk about it from a recruitment standpoint a lot. Um, So for example, that semester where I started to implement winds and brass and percussion, what I did was I just, and I'm sure that many people do this, I just bought string arrangements and just arranged my own wind parts Mm -hmm. uh, because I knew I wasn't, I knew buying a full orchestra piece wasn't going to be advantageous at that stage. So we bought some, you know, Sandra Dachau charts and Deborah Baker Monday charts and and arranged some wind parts to accompany them. And then eventually that grew into a full orchestra. Uh, We did some recruitment concerts. We played it. We did like a dining hall tour, a campus dining hall tour, because we thought to ourselves, well, where are the most amount of students going to be? And short of like the student union, which would be another option, it just wasn't for us Uh uh, playing in the dining hall. So we did like a Star Wars thing in the dining halls and we made no the Snapchat, way. you know. <laughs> Hell yeah. So like so, while people were that, eating, you guys were playing right on that same level? Yeah, like in the dining hall. <laughs> wow. Flyers. And, I mean, and that's not, even the. I think the best recruiters, you know, think that kind of thing. And I'm just making it look fun. We made t-shirts. We, we tried to increase our social media presence. But ultimately, I, I think this goes back to what Mark, you know, our, our teacher's philosophy of recruitment is, and I, and I still hold to it, is that ultimately students recruit students. Mm-hmm. And so if the, stu- and, and I can't stress that point enough, and I, and I know that so many other people out there say the same thing, it's that if the people in the room are having a positive experience, then they will naturally bring their friends into the room. So it's really hard to recruit if you're just not taking care of business in the classroom. You know, if things are disorganized, if the music isn't, 
in order if the Boeings aren't right, if, if you're not like a cordial human being, if you're not building in time to get to know the students as people, if all that's not happening, then your recruitment is like never going to happen. So like, there's the recruitment is like the icing on the cake of just making sure that you're doing your job right in the room. Because then I think it just sort of happens naturally, at least in my circumstance, you know, in other circumstances, it's it takes a bit more arm twisting, I imagine. But right. But yeah, I, I love how you think outside of the box and how you're always trying different things, like playing in a dining hall. And it seems like that was really successful. So that's great. Um, one of one of the it luckiest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the luckiest things I feel like in my life that I get to know you is that you have been so helpful with me and my learning through being a teacher and rehearsal and conducting and those kind of things, because during my student teaching, you would sit with me on Skype and we would watch videos of me teaching. You'd give me pointers and, and that kind of stuff. Do you video yourself conducting every time you're on the podium? Yeah. And uh, uh, oh, yeah. all the as often as I possibly can. I mean, the answer should be every time, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes you have technology breakdowns. But yeah, for all intents and purposes, all the time. And what do you look for when you're watching those tapes back? Oh my, good question. Well, here's what I don't look for. We'll okay. start with that. Okay. What I don't look for are these kinds of, and we can talk like conducting as well as rehearsal and, and other things, but what I don't look for is sort of arbitrary conducting rules, whatever that means. You know, like mm -hmm. I don't watch my tape. Oh, I think my wrist could be a little more this way. Or, oh, I think if I just got the tip of my baton here or... Oh, I should watch my posture here. Like, I'm not, it's not that those things aren't valuable. I just don't think they're even close to being what you should be looking for. I mean, I'm, I, I would say what we should, what we should be looking for is just what kind of connections are we making with the people in the room? Yeah. And that might have an effect on our posture and that might have an effect on our eye contact and that might have an effect on our conducting. But uh, so I just want to see is is what's happening effective or not and just being like really brutally honest with yourself which is the hardest part because it's easy to convince yourself that things are going well when you know the, the entire room is burning down but <laughs> yeah really really honest with yourself is that's why you film yourself so you can watch it in the privacy of your own home <laughs> right yeah i can't tell you how many times i've thought like a lesson went really really well and i look back and and I see the percussionists like jumping up and down and dancing and yeah. <laughs> there's kids talking to each other. And I'm like, man, I thought this went so well. Half the kids weren't even paying attention. So, oh, yeah. Or the phone on the stand. Thing yeah. That you see from oh, the yeah. yeah and you're, I told you to put your phone away. Yeah, you get that. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. happened. Yeah. So uh, going back to trombone a little bit, what was it like? I mean, I'm sure you've went through all the 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 studious processes of learning the string instruments and, and how to teach those instruments. Was it a difficult switch from going from trombone mindset to strings mindset? Well, I would not, I just want to clarify, I would not say that I have the, the qualifications to teach. I, I like to separate the string world into the left hand and the right hand. And I would like the bow arm and the, and the, left hand fingerings, I would not say that I have the qualifications to adequately teach the left hand. I, I think that that, because I don't work, because I don't operate in K-12, um, yeah. 
Uh, if I did, I would I would be actively working on that every day. But because I'm working with students who are post high school, I spend almost all of my time working on the pedagogy of the right hand. And so, yeah, this one is always a tricky one because in the string world, there is this sort of culture that if you're not a string player, there's just no possible way you could ever know anything about string instruments. I, I don't think that that's true, but I think there's perhaps a kernel of truth to that in that you really just need to surround yourself with string players. You need to watch what they do. You need to be in rehearsal. You need to be getting up like right next to them and watching what their arm is doing and watching how the string crossings are working. And, and, and then short of that, I mean, there are books you can read, but honestly, that's not the most helpful way to go about it. Like you can't really learn about Boeing from reading a book. It's not that it's not helpful. And I certainly have the books, you know, and sometimes it's helpful as a reference, but, but, and uh, I will say that I took cello lessons for two years just to sort of feel the instrument and, you know, get my head wrapped around how it, how the various components of like weight and bow speed and placement kind of function on the string instrument. But, but at the end of the day, you just got to like be willing to make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think the, the tendency with people who are afraid of like, crossing over from winds to strings or strings to winds or or winds to choir and that's a whole other thing we can talk about because as an orchestral conductor you deal with voices just as much as you deal with strings is there's this notion that because you were really good at the trombone you feel kind of guilty about not knowing anything about the <laughs> strings you feel like you're going all the way back to like fifth grade and that's that's not entirely true because you're still a good musician but it is true that you don't know what you're doing and you have to be willing to just make a lot of mistakes, which means you have to just get the ball rolling. You have to start bowing everything you possibly can and just make as many mistakes as you can, like bow parts, hand them out to your friends and then have them just rip them to shreds. They say, this is completely backwards. This doesn't make any sense. I don't have this note on my instrument, you know, or just whatever, yeah. whatever silly things you're going to wind up doing you need to get those mistakes out of your system early because you can't be like at your first college job trying to bow parts and just not be able to do it. So as a student, I, you know, Cynthia Johnston Turner, who was my conducting teacher for my second year of Georgia, she had this kind of mantra that was like, make sure you build opportunities in your day to fail, <laughs> Uh, which I don't think she literally meant like make sure you fail hardcore, like, but I think she wanted you to make sure you're always outside of your comfort zone, yeah. you know, and yeah, that's important. So now I would say that I am like confident in Boeing's and string pedagogy, but there's still like a world of things to learn. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that was a very thoughtful answer, man. Um, so I've got one more question for you before we get to our rapid fire session. Okay. And, and I kind of ask this to everyone, but I'm going to ask it to you in a little bit of a different way. If you could go back in time to your first year of graduate school at the University of Georgia, and you could give yourself just one piece of advice that you could take with you for the rest of your life, what would you say? Wow, Kevin, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I thought about this. Um, I would say that the word, the most important thing that I still believe in 
um, and that I wish I believed in earlier was that make sure that you digest as much art as humanly possible. I don't just mean music. Um, I mean as much art as possible. I mean, go to as many films as possible, go to as many shows as possible, read as many books as you can, you know, what, you know, plays, puppet shows, you know, whatever it happens to be, stand up comedy, you know, DJ things, uh, and obviously symphony concerts and popular concerts. And uh, it's just, we live in the 21st century. I'm so tired of this, like, I'm a wind conductor. I'm an orchestra conductor. I'm a choral teacher. Like, this is just not the world we live in anymore. We, you need to be able to, we need to be able to draw connections between things, you know, because that's what, that's what everybody else in the world is doing. That's what Apple's doing. That's what major companies are doing. It's not, it's not enough that, you know, we know the top 20 core repertoire standards for the wind band or whatever that means, you know, it's, we just have to know more. So like, you know, we're doing an opera right now and the tech, uh, the lyrics are by Langston Hughes. The book is by Elmer Rice and the music is by Kurt Vile and it's set in the 1930s in America. And, and that's a huge amount of stuff to draw upon. And if you're just like, all I know is my B flat major scale and a little bit of music theory and I can play the trombone. Well, I just don't know how you're going to tackle this project. So you have to, I would say going into a conducting degree um, it's very tempting to like want to get myopic about my wrist has to go here and my baton has to be like this and my you know my shoulders have to be like this. I just I think that's missing the point entirely. I think it's really important to just keep expanding horizons because the academic system is designed to make you to make you a specialist at something. You know you don't really have to work at that. I mean you have to practice. Don't get me wrong, but the system is designed to make you a specialist. It takes effort to become uh, to become well-rounded. The system is not designed to make you well-rounded. Even though theoretically you take all these gen eds and you take all these general courses, most people just fly through those and don't really pay attention. I mean, we all everybody has stories about the class yeah, they sure. took in their undergrad that they pay attention during. So the system isn't designed to make you well-rounded. You actually have to actively work at that. And I think that the best college teachers I've noticed are able to, or any or any teachers for that matter, are able to draw connections between like sports and music, or music and politics, or music and life, and 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 I think that that would be my one piece of advice because it's very easy to just to get sucked into the like day to day. Okay, this deadline, this deadline, this deadline, this deadline. Sure. But if you can just like step back for a second and think about the bigger picture at least once or twice a week, it in the long run it's going to make a huge huge difference in your ability, I think, to just connect to students, which is ultimately what we all should be doing. Yeah, what the goal is. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> Evan, I don't know what it is up in the water in East Lansing, but I swear every time <laughs> I talk to somebody from Michigan State, I just like feel all this inspiration like soaring through my veins. That's amazing. Oh, it, man. Is a very, it is a special place. I, I really love it here. And I think it's not, I, I think all conductors here the faculty but the like all of my friends and colleagues in the wind department and suhan in the orchestra department and the choral tas i mean they're all just really killer people so i mean i i'd, I'd happily throw a shout out to michigan state because i think we're a really special group of people yeah awesome all right so to finish out this interview we're gonna do a quick rapid fire session i'm gonna ask you questions 
and you just say the first thing that pops into your head. You ready to go? Deal. All right, Deal. so Evan, you are a student all the time. Um, you're, you're, you're studying all the time. Tell me where your dream vacation is. Maine. Maine. <laughs> I love Maine. I love the beaches of Maine. It's the it's not exactly everyone's dream, but it's my dream. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, how many cups of coffee do you drink a day? Two. Two. Um, are you a Pepsi or Coke person? Coke. I can't even drink Pepsi. It's awful. Can't do it. <laughs> Here's a deeper it's like one. Like liquid plastic. <laughs> liquid plastic. What's a quote that you wish you could put on a billboard? Um, oh geez. Yeah, you just got this is this is just gonna take me a second to recall it, but it's um and the, uh, I'm gonna get this slightly wrong, but it's a quote by Nietzsche that I really like. And it is um uh, I got it. It is quote and they were thought to be crazy by those who could, oh, I'm not going to get this right. You might want to edit this. <laughs> okay. It's, uh, <laughs> this is defeating the rapid fireness of this. It is, uh, oh, got it. And those that were, so this is, this is a quote by Nietzsche. It's, uh, and those that were dancing were thought to be crazy by those who couldn't hear the music. Yes. That's my favorite quote. Yeah, I think that's yeah. actually <laughs> spot on. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, Okay. What motivates you to be your best? Oh, ooh. Um, the, the, the goosebump feeling one gets when a student gets something. Yeah. Specifically, not just anything. I mean, like, it's really cool when they get something technical. And honestly, that's, that's to be celebrated as well. But when a student really gets something conceptual for me that's really great like when they when they ask a question that's really interesting in a piece we're doing that that when the light bulbs go off yeah that that's that's why I do everything when I, I was do. in college I had this assignment where we had to interview like a teacher who who was a influential in your life and I interviewed my middle school band director and he said his his uh the same question what motivates you to be your best? He you said it's the light bulb moments when a kid just gets it. And I, that stuck with me. I, I agree with that. Um, all right. Two more. It represents so much work that you had to do on your part <laughs> that just suddenly popped, you know, and that's the best part of it. Yeah. All right. What is your morning routine like? Um, coffee, score study, but, you know, obviously morning stuff, but, um, Coffee, score study. I score study in the morning because once you hit the day, I can't, you know, you get sucked into the logistics of being a TA and being a teacher. Like you just, and then stuff happens and then the school starts, you know, oh my God, we don't have any stands, you know, and stuff just starts happening. And then when you get to the evening, I can't score study because my brain is just racing from all the rehearsals I've had. And then I actually want to relax a little bit. So yeah. morning score study, at least two to three hours. Okay. Last question. What is next for Evan Harger in life? Oh, I mean, I have two more years of my doctorate and then I'm finished and then it's the arduous job process. Um, but honestly, if I get to do what I'm doing now where I'm teaching orchestra, I teach conducting, um, 
I also have this also big passion for philosophy. So like this summer, I'm going to London to present a paper at uh, this conference at the University of Oxford, and which I'm really excited about. And I'm teaching a summer camp for middle school students uh, where I'm going to teach some philosophy classes. So what is in the future for Evan? I mean, I'm hoping it consists of doing everything I'm doing now uh, full time. That would be that would be the dream. All right. Evan Harger, thank you so much for finally coming on the Tenuto podcast. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Tenuto podcast. I will see you all next Tuesday.